Welcome to the SoCal Hymns podcast series. This is Sarah Richardson, and today we are featuring a conversation with California State Senator Dr. Ed Hernandez, candidate for California Lieutenant Governor. Senator Ed Hernandez is running for Lieutenant Governor to make the California dream a reality for all families throughout the state. He grew up in the working class community of La Puente in East Los Angeles. While raising his daughter, he worked his way through college and eventually built a successful small family business providing eye care with his wife, Diane. As a healthcare provider and state legislator, Dr. Ed has spent his career advocating for quality, affordable healthcare, and universal coverage for all. He has also worked closely with advocates to bring down the cost of public higher education and provide one year of free community college. In addition, Dr. Ed has fought big tobacco, passing California's law that increased the smoking age to 21 years old. He stood up to big oil, supporting our landmark environmental laws, and he's taken on big pharma, championing lower prescription drug prices. Dr. Ed is endorsed by over 80 organizations representing working people, including firefighters, teachers, and nurses. He currently lives with his wife in Azusa, and they have two daughters, Valerie and Jennifer, three grandchildren, and numerous grandpups. Senator Hernandez, what a pleasure it is to have you in the studio today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You are in the running to be California's next lieutenant governor to bring people together to get things done. California has a real opportunity to send Washington a message. We're going to put in the work to remain a beacon of hope and progress with fairness, equality, and economic justice. Tell us about your platform. Well, what I'd like to do is take uh, the experience that I've had these last 12 years, that's four years in the Assembly and eight years in the Senate, and move up, become the next lieutenant governor, and work with the new administration, but more importantly, to govern. And what I mean by govern is to get engaged in the uh, caucus, uh, preside over the Senate, continue sponsoring bills, get involved in the budget process, Keep in mind that that's the most important thing, but also to do things that were important to me in the Senate, which is to continue to make sure that every single person in the state has access to health care. But more importantly, how do we control the cost of health care? And also something that is very, very near and dear to my heart, that's higher education. Because when I think about education, especially public education being the cornerstone to democracy, and in a higher education is the greatest equalizer, because where else can somebody like me who came from modest means, you know, I had a daughter at a very young age, had to work full-time, put myself through community college, two years of, three years of Cal State Fullerton, then get a doctorate degree in optometry, become a state senator, and now, yes, possibly even the next lieutenant governor, it's because of the opportunities that were given to me in this great state, and that's what I want to do, is make sure that every kid from a middle-income to low-income family, has the same opportunities that I had to live that California dream that I'm living right now. We have to coordinate to expand access to quality, affordable health care, reduce overall health care costs, and address the provider shortage throughout our state. What are the best approaches to advocating this at a constituent level? You know, um, we in California have done this incredible job with implementation of the Affordable Care Act. We have the first state to have an exchange. We've reduced our uninsured by half. We've been able to maintain, although there's been some instability in the market now, but maintain the cost of our health care. But you touched upon something, and it's access to care. But there's one thing we don't talk about that we should be, 
and that's access to care to the most vulnerable population. And there's two communities in particular that we're having problems. It's the rural and it's the inner city. And it's usually those communities that where we have minority communities, African-American and Latino, where we have the highest incidences of chronic disease. We need to change that so that we can make sure that there is access. And I've been working on issues from whether it's scope of practice, we have to have a conversation with the community about nurse practitioners, being able to have independent practice. I passed a law that allows pharmacists now to be an integral part of our healthcare team, where they're now going to become primary care providers, we have to look at innovative ways besides increasing our primary care workforce shortage for physicians as well. You've been an elected official and healthcare champion since 2006 when you joined the state assembly. Of the initiatives you have led, from guaranteeing access to affordable coverage for those with pre-existing conditions, to working on expanding coverage so that access to quality care is truly universal, while developing policies that control costs in our health care system, which of these has been the most rewarding? You know, for me, I think the most rewarding has been all of the consumer protections bills bill that I passed that allows every single person in the state to have access to care. But more importantly, for example, they're not going to be denied because of pre-existing condition. The law that allows parents to keep their students insured up to age 26, that was a game changer because now a lot of students weren't eligible. You know, the protections that they now know the consumer is not going to be able to go into bankruptcy because they can't afford their premiums because they bought junk insurance or they bought insurance that didn't fully cover. These are all now guarantees from the bills that I've passed and was signed by Governor Brown that allows every Californian that they will be guaranteed access to health care. To me, that's probably the most exciting part of being a state senator. From an HIT and public policy perspective, we are nationally tackling telemedicine, cybersecurity, the opioid epidemic, and interoperability. Which is the most pressing from your perspective? Well, I mean, they're all important, but I think the most pressing is cybersecurity for a couple of reasons. Think about this. We are now hopefully someday getting to the point where we will be able to get electronic medical records across all platforms so that we can be able to better treat and take care of patients. But what happens if there's some type of cybersecurity breach where that patient information is in the hands of the wrong people? It could be whether it's even an insurance company or anything. This is what we have to protect. And it goes beyond that. I mean, you read the newspaper every single day about what's happening with our bank accounts, what's happening with our credit cards. So to me, cybersecurity is very, very important. But obviously, telehealth is going to play a huge role in how we're going to be expanding our health care. And when I was talking about earlier about access to care, there's some very innovative ways now that we're using telehealth. There's now telehealth for for pharmacy. There's going to be telehealth for psychiatry. There's telehealth for my profession in vision. You know, we're doing retinal uh, exams uh, via telehealth. There's telehealth for reading images. This is all going to help control healthcare costs, but more importantly, get access to care in the areas we need it the most. With the opioid epidemic and telehealth coming together as a way to serve some of those rural and underserved populations, how do you see being able to bring telehealth together for dealing with addiction, which is really at the root of what the opioid epidemic is all about? You know, we can do it in a variety of ways. Obviously, um, telehealth, but more in particular, um, communications with how we deal with our providers. You look at the cure system that is 
very, very under um, uh, performing right now, but more importantly, doesn't have the proper amount of resources. But we need to be able to bring, you know, the communities together, especially the technology communities, to bring telehealth in particular with the opioid uh, epidemic to be able to have patients, whether they're seeing them in clinics, in areas where they don't have access. I don't know if you know this, but in the rural areas, when you look at the opioid uh, epidemic, there's statistics that show that's the number one leading cause of death of young white men. The number one leading cause. We should be screaming from the mountaintops because these young individuals are dying because of these opioid epidemics. So we need to bring technology in. You were awarded the HIMS State Legislator of the Year Award on behalf of National HIMS Board of Directors for your efforts that demonstrate a significant contribution to the positive transformation of healthcare through the use of information technology. How can our members and listeners continue to engage with you and other legislators to promote the HIT agenda? So, first of all, thank you. It was an honor. I remember when you came to my office, we were in my conference room, and it was just, just, first of all, this incredible honor. And, of course, I always try to go whenever I'm invited on a regular basis, whenever they have your advocacy day. So I think the first message that I would have is get involved politically. Because whether we like it or not, government plays a significant role in what we do. And you need to engage and you need to talk to your elected officials at all levels, both parties, from the left to the right, and you need to let them know the importance of how technology interplays with everything that we do. But more importantly, it's the innovators in technology that brings things like changes like telehealth, like electronic medical records, like being able to communicate to bring much better healthcare to our patients. So I think a couple things. Number one, engage politically, speak to your elected officials, let them understand the importance but continue to innovate because we need innovation to move forward as a state and as a country. Many of our listeners are aware of our efforts through our advocacy activities that we do with HIMSS. But when you think about reaching out to a legislator and being able to, to drive some of the policies that are really important to an individual, where do they get access to this information or how do they know the hot topics in you know, the state assembly or state legislation today to have those meaningful conversations? So I think it should begin with the association, how you guys organize as a group, because you will be advocating on behalf of your industry. And I'm assuming you're going to have, uh, whether it's a paid representation up in Sacramento, that'll be able to get that message to the legislators. But here's a stronger message. It's even stronger than having a paid advocate. It's you, the industry yourself. Once you become familiar with the issues, you should be going to the state capitol or you should be going to Washington, D.C. and talking to elected officials about what we do or what you do in your industry to make the lives better for our constituents because we need to respond to everybody, including, you know, the industry itself. When you look at the next year or two in both state politics, obviously in national politics, how do we bring together the divide that exists today? How do we do that as constituents and, and really make sure that the right conversations are happening to affect the change that we need in our state? So, I mean, obviously, I work in a very partisan world, you know, that of, of government being in the state assembly and the state senate. You know, that's the reality. Uh, unfortunately, that's what we deal with at the national level. But I think the saddest thing that I've seen in my whole years of, you know, being on this earth is I've never seen so much division in this country than I've seen before. 
I mean, I was a young man when, you know, during the 60s, and I saw it on TV, but it, it was different because I was, you know, a much, much younger individual. Whereas it's sad to see the attack, whether it's on women's issue, on immigrants, on healthcare and the environment. And it seems like we're polarizing, we're going to opposite corners. If we are going to make a difference, we need to govern for everybody. So I think the message that I would have is, you know, go out and vote, make a statement, get engaged, because the electorate needs to tell government, because we work for our constituents, that we need to govern you know, and we need to govern for the entire country, not just the left or the right. And for me, that's the saddest part of what's going on right now. How do we encourage people to get out and vote? And I say that because I remember being not in California during the presidential election. And so I'm fortunate I was able to vote before I went to a conference. It happened to be over election time. And there were several young individuals who were at this conference I was attending. And it was election day. And I said, did you vote today? And they said, no, we didn't. I said, why not? And they said, because it doesn't matter. And that was just this horrifying message, partly because it was predominantly a group of young women. And you didn't even have a right to vote until the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920. Tell me more about how we continue to get young people involved with the importance of their vote having an impact on our state and on our country. Well, first of all, it does matter. Your vote does matter. And I think the message needs to be explained to everybody, young, old, you know, every class. I mean, let's let's think about this. You know, as an elected official, we get criticized all the time, you know, that there's too much money in politics, that nothing gets done, that, you know, we're, we go to our corners and our partisan, you know, Democrats against Republicans. As dysfunctional as it may seem, this is still the best system in the world. Here's the reason why. I'm running for lieutenant governor. After November 6th, the next day, I'm either going to be lieutenant governor or I'm not. But what's great about this country is if I am or if I'm not, I wake up and I'm alive, and we still live in this incredible country called United States, state of California, we have a democracy. Think about the countries. After an election, you may not be alive. Think about countries where there isn't democracy. What about those countries that are given for the first time the ability to vote, and they, they go in record numbers because it's a, such an honor? That's the message we have to get to everybody, and especially young people, to value who we are as a democracy and a country, and we have to encourage everybody to vote, especially this time around. When you first started your medical practice, a fax machine was considered interoperability for you. Tell us about where it's come forward today and how that makes a difference in, in pushing some of the policy we do for true interoperability in patient care. So my wife and I, who are both optometrists, we started our practice 31 years ago. And I can remember the most advanced piece of equipment we ever got was our fax machine. It was on that thermal paper, and that was high-tech. And then a couple years later, we got a first computer where we actually did recalls, and it was an IBM with, like, I think, two megs of RAM. And we used to do our recalls, and we'd start them in the evening, come back the next day because it was on the dot matrix paper. It took all night to print it. Well, let me tell you how it's changed and how healthcare has changed. Today, if God forbid, if we were not to have internet in our office, we could not survive. Everything we do is done through the internet, from electronic health records, 
our scheduling is in the cloud to patients getting access to make appointments, to get authorization for insurance. Before, we used to have to wait for the paper to come in with an authorization or fax it, and it would take days or weeks. Now it's a, it's instantaneously. You know, we have computers everywhere. Our, our doctors that work for us walk into the exam room with iPads, and they've got these screens where they're touching them. I mean, I cannot imagine practicing now without that ability to connect to the world. You know, the docs that work for us, you know, they need to look at a drug interaction. They get on their, you know, their PDF on the on their iPad. Everything is at the at your fingertips. So, technology has made a huge difference in how we practice healthcare in this country now. Does it ever become? an issue where it puts us at a disadvantage. You mentioned cybersecurity as that number one item that we need to be thinking about. And yet we saw the WannaCry virus and we've seen ransomware lock systems up and almost hold us hostage to our own information. Is it feasible that it could become something that is more of a detriment to us? And what are our downtime procedures? How do we continue to provide excellent care when our systems are locked up and we don't have access to what we've become so accustomed to? And going back to the first question, a couple questions you asked me about you know, what was important, and I, exactly your point, it's cybersecurity. Um, we used to have at one point all of our data on a server that we'd have in our practice but we were, I was so afraid of somebody hacking it that we now have it in the cloud. We have limited access. We can't get on the internet through it. It's only to, to uh, access the patient data that we have. But what happens if, for whatever reason, that gets attacked? That could really take an effect on us, the ability to do business. There's been some very, very few instances where there have been accidents on the street. You know, the uh, Edison has knocked out a power pole, and we've lost electricity, and we lose our internet. That's it. We just, we can't. We cannot perform unless we have access to the internet or access to our patient records. So, you know, it, it's kind of a, a, a good and the bad, but I think for us to continue to move forward as healthcare providers and work in how we're going to do in this industry, it has to be done through technology. You had mentioned that if you become lieutenant governor, you have one path on November 7th. And if for some reason you don't become lieutenant governor, you have another path on November 7th. Does your agenda change? And tell us about how it looks regardless of the outcome of the election. No, I mean, I'm still who I am. First of all, I never in a million years ever imagined that I was going to run for office. I mean, I was always good in math and science. I knew I wanted to be a doctor, ended up being an optometrist. But this is the only thing I ever did politically. I voted because my father instilled in me the values of voting. I read the newspaper and I watched the news. But it was my love for wanting to have access to care to patients that I got angry and became engaged in the political process and decided to run to make a difference. You know, when I opened up my practice, I decided to go to an area where there was fewer doctors that took Medi-Cal. We see a lot of Spanish-speaking patients, low income, lots of disease, lots of pathology. And those are the things that have always been my passion. That's why I fought to try to get access to care in those areas we talked about, the rural and the inner city. So I'm not going to change who I am. I'll still be doing it, but in a different format. But I sure hope I can do it as lieutenant governor because I will have the bully pulpit of that office to, to advocate for things that I believe in. California has 40 million people in our state today. How hard is that? To, to govern and to create policy that can 
really touch 40 million people where they are at any given time. So let me tell you something about governing the state of California and what makes it so difficult. It's diversity. And it's not only its diversity, but its size and the number of people. But what makes it good also makes it what makes it good to govern and what makes California great, but also makes it difficult is because it's so diverse and so big. You know, I, I say this all the time. We're kind of our victims of our own success because we're busting at the seams. Let's take, for example, the master plan of the state of California that was put forward in the 1960s. We had 20 million people, much different population. It looked a lot very similar, and the demographics wasn't very diverse. Well, we need to look at readdressing that master plan today, but look at the how big we are as far as 40 million people, and it's good because we're growing and we're becoming more prosperous, but what else is it doing? Look at our traffic, congestion, housing. We're not building enough housing units. So I think what we have to do is in government is continue to strategically look forward to see how we're going to continue to not only grow, but address those growth issues. California takes a lot of heat for being as progressive as we are, depending on your views. But you and I are both California natives, and there's a side of us that's very proud of the fact that we like to push the envelope as a state and, and setting policy and, and doing the right thing for our constituents. Does that need to change? Do we need to have a, a smaller voice in the larger landscape, or does California continue to be as loud as it is in driving the right policy and right activities to make a difference in this nation? So we need to be screaming from the mountaintop exactly who we are and what we are. Now, everybody may not agree with us, but that's what democracy is about. We can agree to disagree. And I believe that's why California has been able to govern, because you know we are a blue state, there is a majority Democrats in both House. All the constitutional offices are Democrats. And yes, we are very bold. And look at you know, what we've done with the Affordable Care Act. We've taken a leadership role in that. In climate, you know, dealing with the uh, Paris Accord, looking at all the, the emission laws that we've been able to pass. Look at what we've done with our water, what we've done with you know, air pollution, reducing it. We need to continue to be the leader, not only in California, but in the country and the world as well. So everything you've touched on doesn't have to be partisan. Everything you've touched on is simply about being aware of and doing the right thing. For listeners and for constituents who don't have a party preference who are, or who are jaded today by what some of the bipartisan activities look like, how do they make sure that their voice is heard? Is it really just going out and voting? Or where do you see uh, this other party affiliation being beneficial to our state government? Here's what I've learned serving in the legislature, and whether it's um, a municipality, a water board, a school board, whether it's the Senate, the Assembly, Congress, people who get elected are a reflection of their communities that they come from. And at the end of the day, it's the constituents and it's the voters that need to express what they want and who they want to represent them. And I would just say that, you know, voice your opinion. And yes, uh, elections are very, very important because guess what? We as elected officials, me as a state senator, I work for the constituents of the 22nd Senate District. And if I get elected as lieutenant governor, I will work for everybody in the state of California from the left to the right. You need to tell your elected officials what you believe in. 
our listeners and our constituents are going to want to reach out to you because they know that you have a powerful voice in HIT and other items that really matter when it comes to healthcare and technology. What's the best way for them to reach out to your staff and to your office to have their voice be heard? Well, we do have a, well, I'm terming out, so unfortunately I'm only going to be a state center until the end of November, but uh, we have our, obviously our district office as well as our capital. Uh, on the campaign side, you know, obviously you can reach me either through my Twitter and or my Facebook, which is at Dr. Ed Hernandez, or if you go to my campaign website, it's Ed Hernandez, the number four, ca.com. Senator Hernandez, what an honor and a privilege it has been to have you on our show today. Any final thoughts as we lead into the election and that you would want our listeners to know? Um, Just get out and vote. I mean, you've heard this over and over that this is the most important election. I can't say this enough. This is the most important election because, as I said earlier, the concerns that I have about the division that's going on in our country and whatever, whatever you are, whether you're Democrat or Republican, you know, whether we agree or disagree, but at the end of the day, you need to play your most important role, and that's to vote. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SoCal Hymns podcast series. Special thanks to Esteban Parano, our audio and mixing engineer, for helping us to produce our podcast series.